Before we start today's show, or even after, make sure to head over to TheRinger.com, where all week we've been celebrating good, bad movies. From Con Air to Roadhouse to White Chicks, I wrote about The Boy Next Door. It's the films that are so terrible, they're endlessly amusing, and dare we say it, actually good. So please join us as we give the -the over-the-top action movies, low-budget romance thrillers, and Pete Gady's Cheese Fest the spotlights they deserve. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for The Ringer. And on the other line, locked in a boss fight with Phil Jackson's third and final form, it's Jason Concepcion. His attacks are so unpredictable. I'm going to knock him out one of these days. (laughs) We are going to talk in a few minutes to Kotaku's Nathan Grayson about Overwatch a little bit, about E3, about sex the video game kind and about loading times and yeah. why they're so long but before that we just wanted to spend a few minutes on the game that we are playing right now arms the new nintendo brawler for switch which i think you have spent more time with than yeah. i have so i just really have formed initial impressions and i'm still very much in the flailing stage as i told you where i'm <laughs> just kind of button mashing and figuring out what does what and Neither of us is really an accomplished fighting game player, no, right? Is that I'm not true? A, I'm not a big. I'm not a big fighting game person in general, but I've yeah. this, this one for some reason. I've really enjoyed the motion controls. Are I mean, they, there's a learning curve for sure, mm-hmm. and I think one thing I've really encountered is that people playing on the pro controller can clearly move better than you. That mm. said, once you figure out how to throw your punches, you can control your punches better than yeah. the pro controller people. So it's, it's a bit of a trade-off. And I, I knew I was enjoying the game when I got into a online match and I knocked someone out and I caught myself walking around my living room like with one arm up in the air and like <laughs> bouncing on my heels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like the time that I've spent with it so far and I'm a big Smash person. Yeah. So I figured that maybe... The Nintendo fighting game magic would rub off on arms also. So I'm planning to spend more time with it. I'm a little overwhelmed right now just because mm-hmm. there's a lot going on on the screen. And I have a pro controller at home and I also have Joy-Con. Joy- it was Joy-Con singular and plural. Yeah. I have two Joy-Con. I don't even know how to say what I was doing with the Joy-Con. But I have both motion controls and pro controller. So I've tried both and I was playing with my fiance and she was using the motion controls and I was using the pro controller and it seems like maybe the learning curve is lower for pro controller yeah or at least it's it's more familiar to hold a controller and interact with a video game that way but I see what you mean about maybe not being able to aim your punches quite as well because you 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 throw a punch and then you can kind of put some spin on it after you throw it and maybe that's a little harder with the joystick, but it is easier, I think, to to move around. When we were playing co-op, like in the arena mode, I was definitely taking a lot more friendly <laughs> fire from my fiance than she was taking from me, which I assume is at least partially controller related. But I still, I haven't even tried all the characters yet and yeah. all the different 
alignments. It seems like there's a lot of strategy, even with the, yeah. the loadouts of the different arms. Yeah, it's, it's quite strategic, as I've been discovering. The thing that was the breakthrough for me was figuring out how to uh, just match the different arms that I wanted to use. I often use something with that's not a big damage weapon, but that has some good reach for my jab, and I'll just keep someone you know, at, at distance with the jab and then try and line up the big punch with the right, which I'll throw less often. Mm. Um, and I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I'm a number, I'm a level five. I'm Ooh. ranked. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and you get a sweat up playing it too, which is, which is great yeah. if you're using the motion that is. Right. And then after a while, you know, it's like when you start to get tired, you just start to do s stupid things. But moving is, moving is the challenge. Punching is fun. It's the moving and punching that is challenging at this point. Hmm. Do you have any tips for me and for other people who are thinking about picking it up or just picked it up? Any good starter characters or or just things that you picked up along the way? Sure. I like, uh, let's see, I like Helix, which is like the green DNA guy. He's got <laughs> yeah. um, like this laser dragon. Um, it's an ice dragon punch, mm -hmm. which is, it's like the, so it's like a medium timed punch. Um, I like to use that as the jab to kind of keep people at, at length. And then he's got this like bulbous blue arm that's like the long range hit. And when you when you get that flush, it uh, leaves like a glob of, of blue material over the <laughs> over the opponent's face. You can't see that well. Uh -huh. That's a great. And he's he's got some cool things he can do with if you with his dash and jump feature. If you hold down dash, he kind of squats into like a puddle on the ground. And if you hold down jump, he can elongate his body and you can kind of rain punches downward on people. Mm -hmm. And Kid Cobra is a great one for if you want to be very mobile and be jumping around and being be just basically annoying. Mm -hmm. um, he's got a bunch of good long range punches. One is kind of like a boomerang that freezes people for a second. And then he's got um, some more standard like a rocket punch. That's mm -hmm. like a medium range one. And the other one I like is, if you want to be just kind of like cheesy, is Master Mummy. He, <laughs> yeah. If you block with, Ma if you if you hold block with Master Mummy, he regenerates his health after a little while, which is yeah. kind of cheesy, but he's good. He's also good. He's the kind of guy, though, you need to get in close with him and just kind of never stop. Yeah. Punching. As a Donkey Kong Smash player, I yeah. feel like Master Mummy <laughs> might be my, my go-to yeah, for arms. Yeah. <laughs> Seems analogous. I, I would say the, the one, the two critiques I I've, I've, would have of the game are, there is not that much content at this point, um, yeah. for sure. When you're playing unranked, the three-way battles are terrible. Like, it just makes no sense why that's in there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then you get there, I think as people progress into the game they're going to need to figure out something for pro controller versus motion controller people that said mm -hmm. it's fun it's not smash mm -hmm. fun yet yeah you know, it doesn't have the doesn't have the depth of history of smash and and all the characters but it's it's really fun i'm really enjoying it yeah i'm looking forward to it do you think one of the controller types will be ascendant or one of them will be the, the preferred <sighs> mode of play for serious players? I have a feeling like it's going to be the pro controller. Uh -huh. I just just the, the ability to leap and move and dodge punches, I think is going to end up being um, more valuable than some of the things you can do with the motion controller in terms of aiming your punches, putting spin on it, cross 
crossing your punches. That's just my sense, but I, I could be very wrong. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's deep enough to be a prominent esport? I, you know what? I, I really do. Like, there's, yeah. there's enough of a base of strategy to the game in the sense that it's clear what attacks beat what attacks, what attacks beat what blocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a rock, paper, scissors thing, you know, like, um, so if you go in for, if someone's blocking that beats that, that parries a punch, a regular punch, if you want to break through a block, you can do a grab and then a single punch breaks up a grab motion. So there's this, so there's that kind of mechanic and reading and reacting your opponent, uh, is really a great way to play the game. I'm, I've pl- I've been in matches where I lost the first round and just switched up my entire style based on what the opponent was doing and ended up winning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's gratifying in a fighting game when you can apply that kind of planning and strategy on the fly into a live situation, which and then see actual results. That's that's when a fighting game to me is the most gratifying, and it's not just I just went in there and just button mashed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't always graduate beyond the button mashing stage, (laughs) but I'm going to try to do it here. And uh, so I'll continue to play and not tell you when I'm playing or make any effort to connect with you (laughs) online. (laughs) All right. So it is time to cross off another name on the dwindling list of Kotaku writers we haven't talked to yet. Got to catch them all. We are welcoming in Kotaku staff writer Nathan Grayson. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Nate. Hey, how's it going? Good. So we wanted to talk to you specifically about a couple stories you've written about this year that I uh, have wanted to talk to you about for a while. But since E3 is relatively recent and you were there and you put in the time and braved the show floors and played games in unfinished states, do you have any takeaways or any particular games that you enjoyed the most? I know that you wrote about Sea of Thieves, which Jason and I talked about last week and are somewhat excited about. Uh, Yes. I mean, you know, I saw a lot of games and stuff. I I think my big takeaway, though, and I actually did a piece on this last week, was kind of just the way that the show didn't feel entirely prepared for the general public. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, they that was a big thing this year. They sold 15,000 tickets to people who are not industry or trade or anything like that. And so the show was a lot more crowded, but that was just kind of the 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 sort of superficial symptom of that. Mm-hmm. And the the broader issue is more that the show didn't really change its structure much to accommodate those new people. And so as a result, there was kind of this weird tension between like industry people and showgoers. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just wasn't ideal. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually working on a second piece right now pertaining to security and how security was not really up to par in a lot of ways um, to accommodate all the new people. And so, yeah, that that was sort of my broader takeaway from the show itself. As far as games went, I had to play a handful. Unfortunately, I didn't get to play that many because I was mostly doing interviews and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, Sea of Thieves was really, really good. That's probably my game of show. And uh, Crackdown 3 was okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm kind of iffy on that one because it, despite you know it being years after Crackdown 1 came out, Crackdown 2 was basically just Crackdown 1 again except bad. Um, right. <laughs> It doesn't really feel substantially different, at least mm-hmm. not yet. So that was kind of a bummer. I was impressed by how Spider-Man looks. Mm-hmm. I mm. did not get to play it. Nobody did. But I have high hopes. I mean, did, did you guys play Spider-Man 2 when it was on like PS2 and GameCube and stuff? Yes, I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, so that game was phenomenal. Yeah. And ever since then, they were just like, hey, guys, what if we don't make spider-man games like that what if instead we make them not very good maybe that that'll be like a winning strategy and that just you know for some reason it didn't work out for them and so finally it looks like insomniac you know gets it and they've got kind of that mix of really cool swinging and like arkham inspired combat and so i'm excited to see where that goes it sounded like from reading your write-up that Sea of Thieves maybe looks a little bit better than it plays currently, or at least there's there's some clunkiness, as you said, that has to be ironed out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, it, it's one of those games where it doesn't feel good to play all the time. The, the combat especially is kind of awkward, and uh, e- even when it's going well for you, it just doesn't feel that exciting or intense. It's kind of mm-hmm. like... Yeah, you know, you hit the skeleton until it fell apart. But yeah, I mean, I I think that even if they don't really change that much, the game will still be good. The mm-hmm. the idea is just so fun. Yes. And like the the number of things that you can do and the it, what I like about it is that you know, it, the mark in my opinion of a truly good game is that it's fun to fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Sea of Thieves is like a poster child for that where there are so many different ways that you and your friends can fail miserably and all of them are incredibly fun. Like failure does not elicit this moment of, oh man, I'm frustrated yeah. and I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm going to get mad at the people I'm playing with and take it out on them. Rather, everybody's laughing the entire time. And mm-hmm. that's that's perfect. That's great. So it's not like Overwatch, it sounds like. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's it's not like playing comp in Overwatch where you just want to die all the time. That's it. It actually is a great point because one of my favorite games of all time was the Left 4 Dead series. And which, if people don't remember that game, it's a Valve game where you play cooperatively with three other players to basically move through a map that is infested with zombies and, you know, you just need your players, communication is key, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really fun to die in it, like to fall off a ramp and be swarmed by zombies and be screaming to your friend, like, will somebody please like help me? Or are you just going to leave me here? Uh, and it's just one of my favorite games of all time. One of the stories I really love that you wrote semi-recently is this piece you did about why sex scenes in video games are so hard to make. I wanted to ask you some questions about that. One of the things that I I really found fascinating that is so obvious, but I didn't think about it was just how difficult mocap is when you're making a Mm. video game sex scene. Uh, Could you talk about that Mm -hmm. a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the like many other things in modern big budget video games, they mocap sex scenes and there are a lot of difficulties there, especially. So the the game that I focused on for my piece was The Witcher 3. And That's some of those good, sex scenes. Good choice, I think, for this, for yeah, this particular yeah. topic. <laughs> but yeah, and so some of the sex scenes in that game, you know, verged on being kind of fantastical. And uh, one of the ones that they told me about was this one that happened like kind of in essentially in the clouds. And so what they had to do to account for that, because obviously they couldn't like mocap and anti-gravity 
was they like did it in a swimming pool. Hmm. And so that was just like a, a weird way to handle something like that. And probably something that you don't do for mocap in many other games or many other game situations. And then uh, another story that they told me is that they had a some of the people they used for mocap were like a a couple in real life. Yeah, this is a crazy. So they got into the studio. A crazy wrinkle. <laughs> yeah, they they got into the studio and they were afraid of like revealing intimacy from their own life. They they didn't want to bring too much real stuff into, you know, the recording for the video game. And so that created all these unforeseen complications. And yeah, it was just kind of an awkward situation, though it did eventually lead to one of the best sex scenes, at least in my opinion, in The uh, Witcher 2, which was the scene where Geralt and Triss like were trapped in elven ruins. And they just, you know, they decided like essentially screw it let's let's just you know have sex here because we don't have anything else to do right now and yeah it's just this like really endearing scene because you get to see like Geralt who's this very uh you know stoic guy like first he reacts with surprise that Triss is actually into the idea and then he like excitedly like tears his pants off like he's you know there's this glee to it and it's just all of it is so uh I don't know. It, it's all very heartfelt. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. On the question of mocap, I mean, one of the things that like, I was talking to some of the developers of 2K and one of the things they were saying, um, issues they have in creating their, their my player mode is that um, some of the, especially some of the earlier mocap rigs, the helmets, you know, they have the sensors that kind of raise up from the head. And so when a person raises their hands up to like take a jump shot, it just looks awkward because they're naturally trying to not hit the ball into the sensors that are on top of like the rig. Does, <laughs> I, I would imagine that these are similar obstacles that would come up when creating a mocap sex scene. Is anything like that occur? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. But raising hands in general is a thing or is an issue. The the thing that the Witcher people told me is that's especially difficult because of the way that uh, textures for video game characters work mm. because they're made to hold certain poses and they, there's no real reason in combat and other situations that you'd often see these characters in for them to, you know, just toss their hands all the way up. And so textures like warp and do weird things when characters do that. And, you know, it makes sense because if a character is in combat or they're conversing, they're not going to do that sort of motion. So it's like, why build the character model to do that in the first place? But if people are having sex, they might be laying down. They may have their hands up and back. You might be able to see their armpits or whatever. And uh, or at least that would be the assumption. But they couldn't do that in the game because it would have been it would have looked really bad. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you write about is clipping the tendency for part of a character model to pass through another character model, not in the intended sexual way, <laughs> but, but in some very awkward looking way. And yep. uh, it really always takes you out of the moment and makes it all vaguely ridiculous. And any attempt at emotional resonance that the scene might have is, is spoiled by that. And if you've played mass effect sex scenes or, or whatever you you know what i'm talking about so did you get a, a good sense of why that happens and what if anything can be done to minimize it i mean a lot of it is again just the way that video game character models work and function 
and um they're just not really they're not built to be close up mm. yeah the and so when they do get close up there are all these issues with them and that's why like for sex scenes and stuff like that they have to do a lot of custom animation work because left to their own devices these character models are not going to you know occupy space well together and it's also a reason why in my opinion anytime you see like an authentic looking kiss in a video yeah. game right it's a minor miracle the <laughs> amount of work they had to do to make that happen is it's comparable to like the amount of work that you put in for multiple other scenes in games actually for the witcher they're saying like one well-done sex scene took the same amount of time and resources as like three normal cutscenes. <laughs> yeah yeah i'm trying to think of video game kisses it's like heavy rain is one of the well-known right. awful ones right where they just look like goldfish gulping <laughs> in the general vicinity of each other or something and I mean, are there any success stories other than The Witcher in your experience or as you were so, working um, on this? Or, I mean, is that kind of like the the outlier or are there others? There's one really good kiss in uh, I think it's Assassin's Creed Unity. Mm. It's one of the more recent Assassin's Creed's. I believe it's Unity. And yeah, it's like remarkably well done, too. Like, it's uh -huh. not just, oh, yeah, they, you know, kind of like made it over that bar. It's like whoa like <laughs> this looks like it should be in a movie how did uh -huh. they do that uh -huh. so that's the best example i can think of i, I think we even did a post about it like yeah. just about that kiss because it's like <laughs> holy shit how did they <laughs> what <laughs> yeah right when it looks even remotely natural it's it takes it takes you by surprise and so yeah hopefully in the next assassin's creed uh they they'll remove assassinating that won't be a thing anymore and you'll just go around and kiss people and just give them really good kisses and they'll be like i have decided to change my ways your kiss has proven to me that love is all that really matters you know that's it not crying that's actually interesting like what are some of the landmark kisses and or sex scenes whether they've been technically achieved or not in recent video game history i mean you talk about hot coffee which is probably one of the most impactful moments in recent video game history like beyond the content of the scene just the uh, uproar that it caused but i'm trying to think i guess it would be so hot coffee there's really not mm -hmm. that much mass effect yeah i mean i i think in terms of infamy another one that's like kind of low-key infamous is uh just any of the sex scenes in like the original dragon age mm, yeah because that that sort of anytime people are talking about video game sex scenes is looking like two barbie dolls Mm -hmm. you know doing it um that that's sort of the go-to example people like grab a screenshot from that game and it is pretty egregious they they have these like dead-eyed looks on their faces and like they're still wearing underwear and it's you know very very bizarre it's like sex as portrayed by aliens who don't really know what sex is and they're like i you know watching from our telescope in space this is kind of like the impression we get of how it works yeah and do you see it as more of a directorial issue at times or is it always a technical issue like is it just that the emotional depth is not there because the storytelling and the character building and the writing is not there and if it were there maybe we would forgive some of the superficial failings or is it a combination of both or do you see it as mostly just the drawbacks of the technology yeah i i think it's a combination of all of those things and uh i i think it's only recently started getting better because you know like for a while sex and games was a thing 
that you basically earned. It, it mm -hmm. was like your, you know, one of your rewards for getting close to the end of the game. This was especially prevalent in Bioware type RPGs where you yeah. spent most of the game talking to a character repeatedly and getting further into their conversation tree and eventually doing maybe like a loyalty quest or whatever. And then at the end of that, you're like, okay, now we seal the romance by having sex. Then we go fight the villain. Then the credits mm -hmm. roll. Yay, go everybody. And like, that's this very, you know, very video gamey look at sex Yeah, as like, hey, it's the thing that you unlock for playing the game. And it's also like kind of a problematic one because that, that sort of reinforces these ideas of like the, the point of dating should right. be sex. And then after that, there's nothing left to do and people are, you know, disposable objects and blah, blah, blah. But recently games have started taking a more nuanced look at sex, albeit, you know, only a few of them because not that many games have sex in them. But, mm -hmm. you know, they they've started incorporating more elements of like, for instance, The Witcher is good and that a lot of sex is, you know, happens outside being in any sort of romantic arrangement in the witcher sometimes you can just have sex for the sake of doing it mm -hmm. and that's cool because a lot of people do that that's how people act and uh another thing the witcher does well at least in some scenes is there's humor to it yeah it's not this stone-faced okay now let us have our sexual transaction you know type of thing it's fun sometimes it's awkward and that's fine. That That's how it works. I, I think that another game that I cited in my piece, Saints Row 4, does a good job of that. And to be fair, that game mostly uses it to humorous effect. That's kind of the point. They're, they're parodying sex in games like Mass Effect. But I, I think they also get at something kind of real in doing so, which is this kind of notion of characters who know each other and who are friends and they're like, yeah, sure, I guess we'll do this. And why not? Like, it doesn't have to be weird. It can just be a fun thing that we do. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And then uh, so that that was one thing that was sort of holding sex and games back. And then another thing that I found out that was interesting in the course of my reporting and that I didn't really get to include in my piece, which I'm disappointed about. But, you know, sometimes you just don't get to. So I talked to this one person who researches sex and games a lot. And one of the main things that she had found is that there's not a lot of dialogue, especially between big budget video game studios about sex and games. Like, you know how, you know, there, there are events like GDC, for instance, where mm -hmm. developers come and they give talks about a variety of subjects, everything from programming to art to writing to how to manage your studio better. There, there's this ongoing dialogue. And it's a part of how games get better. People talk about them and how they make them because games are these big, unwieldy productions. And there's so many things that can go wrong. And one of the best things you can do is learn from other people and not make their mistakes. And uh, there's not a lot of that for sex and games, especially not among AAA developers. I, I would say you get a bit more of it among indies. And very quickly, I have to point out my piece was about sex in big budget video games. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire world of indie sex games that right. in many ways are more sophisticated, at least in regards to the subject matter that they explore and the nuance with which they do it. But anyway, so yeah, you have this kind of dearth of conversation in AAA. And as a result, everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. So that, I think, has also held sex and games back. How do developers deal with different cultural mores and, you know, assuming... 
I'm assuming every developer wants to have their game reach the widest audience, but like, you know, there's going to be a difference culturally between selling your game in America or selling your game in Asia. How do they, how do they bridge these divides? So yeah, it, it really does depend from game to game. One of the things that the people making The Witcher had to deal with, even for, you know, Western audiences was that, uh, depicting, visually depicting thrusting is a no-no. <laughs> <laughs> if you do that, you get an AO rating or the equivalent, uh-huh. which, you know, that's challenging with sex. Uh, some would say, <laughs> depending on the type of sex you are having, that's the main mechanic of it. The pixels, but the pixels and the character models can handle thrusting. Let's just be clear about this. It's not like raising <laughs> the <I> arms. <laughs> they could theoretically depict that. Well, I mean, they, they, there are ways to get around right, it, right? Yeah. You don't need to show the actual parts right. doing it. So you can have characters just like mashing into each other and position the camera so that it looks right, as opposed to what's actually probably happening where the characters are just passing through each other and it's a terrifying night genital nightmare. Um, which The Witcher, by the way, if you ever get a chance, look up The Witcher's sex scenes from like different camera views. Uh, it's really something. <laughs> well, at least we seem to have abandoned the god of war practice of sex as a quick time event which is probably whether in real life or in a video game probably not how you would want someone to describe a sexual encounter as a quick time event and so that seems like something that maybe hasn't been ported over to the the current generation which is uh, not a huge loss but yeah it, it seems like there's Long way to go here. We were talking to Robin Hunnicky on the podcast some time ago, and she was talking about how she would like to see more nuanced portrayals of sex in games. And hopefully when the stories reach that point, the technology will also be up to the task or there will be weird uncanny valley stuff that will probably be even weirder and more uncanny when it comes to sex. Yeah, there there is another obstacle there, though. And it kind of ties into the regional thing. And that is that various platforms are also holding it back. Like, for instance, Twitch has a pretty hardline rule against games that primarily are about sex. Mm. And even if it's not sex for the sake of titillation. How do you how do they judge primarily? Just that they have like a heavy component mm-hmm. of it. So, for instance, a in most cases, they don't allow like dating simulators where there's a lot of nudity and a fair amount of you know uncensored sex there there are some censored dating sims that are allowed on twitch but less so with games that are uncensored and uh same with steam steam generally they they have a few like games that are mostly about sex that are uncensored but speaking broadly they require censored versions and so the the effect of that in general is that a lot of developers don't even try with these platforms. And uh, even some developers who are not using sex for the sake of titillation, they either want to tell a story or explore a topic pertaining to sex and human sexuality, find these things difficult. Like uh, a while back, I talked to Robert Yang, who is a developer who makes a lot of games about gay sex. And Mm -hmm. the idea is, you know, he, he wants to explore it, whether it's a mechanical thing or whether it's the politics of various aspects of it. You know, he, he wants to take a look at various angles of it and he tends to abstract it. Like he has a game where uh, it's called Stick Shift. And the idea graphically is that you're revving the engine of a car. 
but you're pretty obviously, you know, getting a dude off. That's uh-huh. the idea. And uh, so he has a lot of games like that, but he also has some more overt games. Like he has a game about taking dick pics. Um, <laughs> he has a game about showering with dudes. And like those games have straight up nudity. And so they're not allowed on Twitch. And I don't think he's been able to successfully get those ones onto Steam either. But yeah, so that just right at the gate, when some of the biggest platforms in the world for games, whether it's for buying them or broadcasting them, are forbidding this type of thing, then that gates people. And in some cases, that stops people from ever making the games they might have made in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, this always comes up with mods that are maybe more anatomically correct than yeah. others or sims mods for instance or many others it's you know what is allowed what can be shown and what is censored so yes these are always considerations and when i read your piece like it just makes it clear how much work goes into making one of these scenes even if if it's in a big budget game past muster when it comes to the witcher example and they're talking about how they had to have the writers write everything early so that they would allow you know three times as much time to animate these scenes and then it would go through these multiple layers of mocap and animators and all of that just to get it to the point where it's not embarrassing looking and so you can Mm -hmm. understand i guess why more games have not made that effort historically yeah for sure all right let's pause here for a word from our sponsor and we'll be back in a minute with more from nathan You ready to save money and play more games? Yes, you can do both of those fun things simultaneously if you'll let me introduce you to our sponsor, Gamefly. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and then have them mailed directly to your door. Gamefly is the leading video game rental service with over 9,000 titles to choose from. It lets you try your favorite games and movies before you buy and then keep the games as long as you want. You'll never have to worry about late fees and you can cancel anytime. And Gamefly now offers movie rentals too. So go to Gamefly.com slash AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. You can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com AO. Now go sign up and start playing all of your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. Now back to Nathan Grayson. All right, well, the other big piece we wanted to talk to you about was something you wrote last month about why games still have bad loading times, or at least some games, and this is not really something I had thought of and explored in the way that you did for this piece. We're all sick of reflexively complaining about loading times, but as you explained here, there's a reason why we are still stuck with them. Are there any recent examples or even just all-time examples that stand out in your mind as games that were ruined or or significantly marred by loading issues like you you liked them otherwise but it was just too high a hurdle to have to face loading over and over again hmm let's see or i guess any that handled it extremely well the other direction that you were pleasantly surprised like i don't know i'm trying to think of games like the old Jack and Daxter games or, or Ratchet and Clank or those games where you would die and almost instantly you would be respawned at the latest checkpoint and there was just no waiting and it really adds to the arcadey joy of playing it and maybe something like Breath of the Wild handles that really well where there's never any serious frustration when you die because you know you'll you'll be right back where you were. I don't know if any others come to either of your minds. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that as games have moved in a more open world direction, you know, learning how to stream a lot of that data 
and eliminating those load times has been really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in older games that you know had kind of an open world philosophy. The interstitial loading screen screens could get pretty annoying. Like I, if I remember correctly, Morrowind had a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was like, oh, I don't want to go into a building. I'm gonna have to wait again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you explain why this is still the case? Why we can put a man on the moon and we can put kerbals on the moon in kerbal space program maybe sometimes but we can't fix the loading time issue and if anything in some ways it's gotten even worse well like like most of the things you just mentioned uh it involves the moon (laughs) (laughs) but no uh so yeah basically the issue is that the size of data continues to grow larger and larger and while the speed at which hard drives and things of that nature can load data has also increased, the increase has not been proportionate. So data has gotten much, much, much bigger and hard drives have gotten a little better. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, even though games look better than ever, there there's a trade-off there where there's also more to load than ever. And mm-hmm. so that that's kind of the core of the problem. The uh, I actually have it up because I really like the quote that uh, was given to me by William Armstrong, who is a programmer who now works for Unity. And uh, he previously worked on games like Bioshock 2 and Firewatch. Mm-hmm. And he said that basically the the process of reading and writing data always involves converting between pure electrons and some kind of physical apparatus. And so that will always, his quote was, that will be slower than pure circuitry um, because everything is slower than light. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's like, yep, sounds about right. <laughs> so we basically <laughs> need warp drives or something to fix video game loading times. Yeah. Like I said, it involves the moon. <laughs> One of the things that I've, you've, I think any gamers noticed over the last several years is just the different methods that game developers use to hide their loading screens. Like I, th- I think the last Tomb Raider was a great example of when you'd go, when you'd move Lara from a di- one area to another, often she would be like kind of sliding through this crack in a wall and it would mm-hmm. create this moment of kind of like a pre-canned motion that was hiding the the load screen under a destiny's another thing which is it's at least pretty to look at when you're flying in your ship but it's you know doesn't create this feeling of motion what are some of the techniques that these companies use to cover the load screens or at least the moderately long ones yeah so there are a bunch of them first though i i want to call back to um you, you brought up the tomb raider yeah, thing that's one of my favorite and ones and that made me realize just how far that's all come yeah because I, I'm sure you remember the uh, the first Mass Effect yep. and it, its solution, which was just to have everyone stand <laughs> yes, in an elevator yeah, it was really bad. for a very long time. It was extremely bad. <laughs> yes. And so to have come from like that to Tomb Raider, yeah. where it's really elegant and cool and like totally fits in the universe, is like, you know, good job, everybody. Yeah. Pat on the back. You did it. Yeah. But yeah. So basically, in in those cases, what developers are usually doing is they're streaming data in that they hadn't loaded before. And in many cases, that data is what's known as, they they call it baking it together. So what they do is they take these very particular parcels of like data that they know will be relevant soon, and that's what's being loaded in. And the interesting thing about that is that in order to do it effectively, developers need to know their games well. They, they need to know 
roughly what the player will be experiencing, where they're going to end up, what they'll be interacting with, all of that. And the the problem there is that it's often hard to know those things until the game is almost done. And so you'll have these situations where, you know, the question is always, how did the game make it out with the, with load times this bad? How could they have not noticed this while they were making the game? And it's not they didn't notice, obviously. Of course they noticed. It's that they were close to the end of, the, of development and they only had so much time to do anything about it. And when you're dealing with load times, a lot of it's optimization is figuring out what's going on and improving things incrementally and trying to figure out where you can tweak one thing and tweak another thing and not break everything. And so, yeah, you, you can, even with the best of intentions and developers who know their stuff really well, you can still end up with long load times just because you kind of reach that point near the end of development and you got to make trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about some of the games that have had post-patch optimizations in this area? And what, one of the most interesting things I thought in the piece was that developers may not even realize that they have long loading times or that certain parts of their games have long loading times because it's only revealed when it's released to a wide audience and stress tested mm -hmm. in various ways that it's hard to do before the game is actually out there. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the most concrete example of that that I got from my piece was a uh, Abduction, which is the most recent game from the creators of Myst. And yeah, so they they put their game out and they thought it was fine. They they didn't think the load times were too bad. And then they got kind of, you know, the floodgates opened. And there were all these people saying, oh, you've got long load times here and there and everywhere. And so, yeah, they just like had to go through and kind of basically tweak all of these things. And I think they're still working on it. But yeah, they had to, in addition to optimizing the engine and doing things like that, they basically just had to uncover all these small things they did inefficiently or that they uh, didn't know that they had done poorly. Like they, they said that they had discovered that they were loading all of the live action movies for a particular area when they loaded the world. And that obviously took up extra time. And so then, and here's an example of how it's all like packaged together in this way where if you change one thing, you've got to change other things. And so it's not as simple as saying, oh, just optimize it a little bit and the load times will be good. It's so what they said is we discovered that we were, that we were loading all the live action movies when we load a world. And so that slows down loading, but it requires a rewrite of one of the character interaction systems to fix. And well, so, geez. yeah, one thing yeah. led to another. And yeah, so then they were like, and the art department found some game textures that could be reduced in size, but those had to be dealt with on individual case-by-case -case bases. And so there are all these little things, and they snowball into m large problems. Mm -hmm. Exhibit 5,783 of why making games is really hard, <laughs> yeah. and it's amazing that anyone can ever do it successfully. Yeah, no, the, the secret about it is, like, it, it's hilarious to me, and also, like, really depressing to see people on the internet be like, oh, all these lazy game developers right. never getting it right. And it's like, do you realize <laughs> the game developers drive themselves insane with how hard they work and that every video game is a beautiful miracle that should not be able to exist <laughs> right yeah so barring some technological breakthrough with hard drives or yeah. something is this problem just going to continue to get worse like are we going to reach a breaking point or do you think developers will find ways to optimize and cut some corners and and somehow keep up with the increasing demands of the graphics and the textures 
I mean, I I do think that for one, like hard drives are getting better. And mm. part of the problem is that up to this point, like solid state drives have not really been viable in kind of uh, gaming hardware for the general populace. Like yeah. you can get a, you know, you can get a high end PC with a sizable solid state drive, but that's pretty expensive. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and consoles not really an option yet. So that that'll help when mm-hmm. when costs on stuff like that go down. But yeah, beyond that, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is, again, developers figuring out techniques to circumvent these things. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the problem isn't going to go away anytime soon. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked what you mentioned about how some games are loading in assets yeah. even during those screens at the beginning when you're seeing mm-hmm. the company logos and everything. So maybe yeah. part of the solution is just hiding it because it's less annoying if it's during startup and it's a, a one-time thing and maybe you're not even sitting there at your couch or whatever, but you turned on the console and you're doing something else and that's a, a little less annoying than if it's constantly interrupting you and, and making you wait every time you're entering a new area or, or respawning or something. Yeah, and I mean... You know, another takeaway is that we live in a time now where games are never really finished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so a, a sort of upside of that, I mean, it, it's a downside, too, is that a game can come out and have pretty crummy load times. And then people play it and they point out to the developers, OK, the most pernicious load times are here, here and here. And the developers can work on that. And so the the downside of that, of course is that developers could theoretically say, well, we don't really need to nail our load times at the gate because it's become acceptable for them to not be perfect yet. Mm-hmm. Like people, you know, work with us on this. But the upside of it is I, I don't think many people want to put a game out with a glaring problem like that. Yeah, I, I don't think developers are suddenly going to rest on their laurels because they can. And so in the end, a game can be better. It might take a little bit longer. The game might have to come out and people maybe not love it as much as they could initially but in time the this sort of collaborative process of players discovering things Mm -hmm. can lead to a better game Mm -hmm. and last thing right before we called you you posted something about blizzard changing overwatch loot behavior which seems like uh, seems like a big deal for for you guys for jason how is this gonna change the overwatch experience uh yeah so they they finally made overwatch good (laughs) no they Um, did that's that's a lie like the the secret of it is that 30 million people were playing the worst game ever made (laughs) and a large part of that is that loot boxes are infuriating yeah and actually, I have, I have a whole spiel about loot boxes because I do think they're a blight. Um, among the, among so the, the, where would you place it uh, in the pantheon of blights that Overwatch has, <laughs> has inflicted upon its players? And it's a game that I play all the time, by the way. Yeah, me too. I, I'm obsessed with it. And initially, I thought you were asking among the pantheon of blights in general, like over the course of human history. <laughs> and I was going to be like, oh, at the top, easily. But um, no, so the, uh, the issue with it, to my mind, and with loot boxes in general, is that they are this kind of distinctly casino-esque mechanic. I mean, you're basically gambling. And, like, gambling is something that's not an intrinsically well-designed thing. It's not actually fun. It's just compulsive. While other games, while the point of game design in many cases is to give the player a thrill or some sort of enjoyment or something that makes them feel good. Gambling is the cheap version of that. 
where you get a reward or the potential of a reward and the intrinsic message of the mechanic is come back for more keep doing this maybe eventually you'll be happy so they pair that with overwatch which is a very good game the mechanics in overwatch are phenomenal everything feels great you never know quite what you're going to get out of an individual match but it will probably be thrilling and novel it's super cool so the problem is that you're playing this good game not for the sake of playing this good game but to be funneled into eventually earning loot boxes and so part of your enjoyment of this really good game hinges on this very bad mechanic where you're just like i'm having a good time everything's going great and i'm gonna go open a loot box and it sucks (laughs) everything i got sucked and now i'm upset or i'm slightly disappointed or i'm feeling this negative emotion over this thing that is only tangentially actually linked into the game it confers no gameplay benefit it's just cosmetic stuff so it shouldn't really be that affecting but it is and then there's the flip side of that where you're having a bad time and like you've lost a bunch of matches in a row and you're feeling either frustrated or depressed or you're like maybe i'm not good at this maybe i should just quit and you've unlocked a loot box and you're like, well, right. at least there's this. At least I'm going to get something. Gold. And then you open the box and it yeah. sucks. And it's salt in the wound. And you're just like, I'm done. I am so, so done. Hmm. So yeah, I don't like I don't like them. <laughs> that said, <laughs> yeah. they are making a change now where the idea is that so basically when you open a loot box, you get a procession of items. And one of the many frustrating elements of them is that sometimes you will get items you already have. And in fact, this happens a lot. And so they're cutting back on how often that happens. So the idea is that hopefully people will get more skins they don't have. Skins being cosmetic things that you can attach to your characters to make them look different. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess that's good news. We can end on a slightly high note. And uh, (laughs) you can find Nathan writing all the time at Kotaku. You can find him on Twitter at Von16, V-A-H-N-16. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Glad we could cross you off our Kotaku bingo card. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who's left? (laughs) Not a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) You have to hire some more people so we can have some new new guests on. Yeah, okay. We'll get right on that. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Nathan. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. So that will do it for today. I think next week we will probably talk a little Rocket League and I don't know what else. We'll see what developments in the world of video gaming there are. See you, Jason. See ya.